And uh, let me add my Happy New Year to uh, those greetings you've already received. Happy New Year uh, 2016, the year of our Lord. Uh, I hope it'll be a great year for you. I think it will be for us as a church. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I'm one of those people who am thankful uh, that uh, 2015 is in the rearview mirror now. It was uh, a difficult year for me, at least in some ways. So, But even in that, God is faithful. God is good. Amen? All the time, God is good. And uh, we look for him to be on the move among us in this coming year. So let's turn to the message. If, uh, if you have ever remodeled part of your home, you know that there are at least three stages to it. The first is when you develop a vision for what you want to do. And that's a very exciting stage in the process. The second stage is when you figure out uh, how you're going to pay for it. Uh, that is much less exciting. <laughs> and then the third stage of the process is when the, the construction or the renovation actually starts, it begins. And that's hardly ever exciting. It's terribly messy, and it's beyond stressful. And that's when you start to have some serious doubts about stage one. <laughs> Where did that vision come from, and why did I have it? <laughs> Shelley and I had to do really a full-blown renovation on the house that we're now living in. That was 15 years ago. And let me tell you, those of you who helped us with that, you know it was a real fixer-upper. I mean, it needed everything from roof to basement, to, from yard to interior, uh, lots and lots of renovation. The new year is one of those times. I think it's a great time to focus on the renovation that needs to be done in our lives or in our church. And, and that is really the key word that I would like to give to you as we enter a new year together, and that word is renovate. Renovate. We will be spending three weeks with a man named Nehemiah. And the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament is the story of a man who came from very humble beginnings to accomplish great things for the glory of God in a very dark time for God's people. He was able to recruit thousands of others to share his vision, to risk their time, their money, their comfort, and even their personal safety to help Nehemiah pursue what God had laid upon his heart. And so I think in this man, Nehemiah, we see something of what it takes, what's involved to be God's man or God's woman or God's church. So here's the backstory. The year was 445 B.C., and the city of Jerusalem was in serious trouble. About a hundred years earlier, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar had attacked Jerusalem. The temple was destroyed, the city walls were torn down and burned, and thousands of Israelites were taken to Babylon as slaves. And so for more than a century, Jerusalem continued to lie in ruins. Nehemiah was a descendant of those Jews who had been taken captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. You can imagine how many times 
he had sat on the lap of his grandparents and heard them tell stories. Oh, Nehemiah, you should have seen beautiful Jerusalem with its towering walls and those majestic gates that that led into the city and into the holy temple of God. He heard the stories. Over the years, as new kings in Babylon came into power, many of the Jewish slaves had been allowed to return little by little to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was still in ruins from the invasion, but now it was slowly being restored. People were gradually returning. They were starting to build some houses, and they were starting to do some business there. And the temple had even been rebuilt and rededicated, and the people began to worship there once again. But all was not well. The walls of the city were still a pile of rubble. This was not good. A city without walls in those days was an invitation to be raided. It would be kind of like leaving your front door wide open when your family goes on vacation. Come on in, help yourself, right? That's what it was like in Jerusalem with no city wall. Jerusalem was vulnerable. Just come on in, take whatever you want. Now, at this time, Nehemiah was not in Jerusalem. He was in Babylon. He was a slave in Babylon. And we'll talk more about his position in a few minutes. But for now, I'll say this. He had a pretty good life. He was a slave, yes. But he lived in the king's palace. One day, his brother, who had just been to Jerusalem, visited Nehemiah. And he began to tell him what was happening Even though Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem, he had an immediate strong connection to it. It was his heritage. It was the city of his ancestors. And in his dreams, I'm sure it was his future home. It's where he wanted to be. So when his brother told him that the walls of the city of Jerusalem were still down, something stirred very deeply within Nehemiah. He wanted to go to Jerusalem. He wanted to rebuild the city walls. And he knew he would have to start from scratch. He was a slave. He had nothing. He would have to travel hundreds of miles to a place he'd never been before. He he would have to analyze the problem, develop a strategy, recruit a team to help him, give oversight to this massive project, face criticism, and even death threats, and somehow finish the job. The book of Nehemiah tells us how he did it, and I think we can learn a lot from Nehemiah about how to pursue the kind of renovation that is needed in our own lives or in our church. So today we're going to look at how Nehemiah got started on his mission of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Now usually when preachers speak about walls, it's kind of a negative image. It's a negative metaphor as if walls are bad. We say something like this. Our calling is to move beyond the walls of our church and to follow Jesus out into the world. And that is, of course, true. But you do have to have walls first in order to move beyond them. Am I right? And we cannot build community anywhere else in Philadelphia or 
in other parts of the world unless we first find community within our own walls. So walls are actually wonderful things. I, cannot, I, I just cannot imagine that any of us would sleep well tonight if we did not have walls in our houses or our apartments. We like those walls. Walls protect us. They give us a security and warmth from both the meanness of the world and the terrifying storms that blow through from time to time. How often have you entered these church walls to find sanctuary? Here in this place, in times of quiet serenity, we all find comfort and rest for our souls after a week of coping with the meanness and the frightening storms of life. And I pray that there will always be creative, restorative space here at New Life Church, where people come together in worship and in community to discover Jesus Christ in our midst, just as he promised. And then when we leave, that we will take home the love of Christ with us to our homes, to our schools, to our workplaces, to our neighborhoods, to every corner of our city. I think perhaps most importantly, the value of walls is the space that is created within them. In the words of one theologian, God always appears in the creative space between people. Now, he was speaking of the importance of living in community and relationship. But the concept also applies to hospitality. Uh, We're going to be holding some conversational dinners this winter, and you'll hear more about that later this month. But it's an opportunity to engage in hospitality and to build relationships, to build community here at New Life Church. I want you to think about that. When you invite people into your home for a simple meal, you're bringing them, as it were, through the gates of your house, inside your walls. It's there that the love that is in your home is freely shared, freely given. And when they leave at the end of your time together, they take your love to their home. That's a great gift that you give with hospitality. It builds community. The first chapter of Nehemiah shows us where renovation begins. Where did the renovation of the walls start? Where was it born? And the birthplace of renovation is the heart. Pure and simple, it's the heart. And that's the title of the message today. Renovation, it starts in the heart. It starts in the heart. It doesn't start anywhere else. Renovation does not start with programs. It doesn't start with policies. It starts with hearts. Your heart. My heart. Renovation in a church starts with Renovation of hearts among the people. So the question is, are we willing to undergo renovation? Remember what I said, it, gets, it can be very messy. It can be very challenging. Are we willing to undergo the kind of renovation that God wants to do in us? Do we want God to make our hearts tender places where healthy change can be born? Don't answer that too quickly. There's some things involved that you might not like. But I pray that if we are not quite yet willing 
to undergo God's renovating work, I pray that God will make us so, that he would give us his spirit and make us willing. God, show us what we need. Show us what we need. So let's begin. Renovation. It starts in the heart. Our text today is just four verses, the first four verses of Nehemiah chapter 1. This is the word of God. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, that's the capital city in Babylon, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Renovation, it starts in the heart. What do we see here in these few verses? What do we see here that we need at a heart level? to engage in renovation, to experience uh, God's renovating work. Well, we see several things. We're not going to look at all of them today, just a few of them, and then we'll continue next week. But the first thing we need is a servant's heart, a servant's heart. In the last verse of Nehemiah chapter 1, which we did not read, Nehemiah says this, I was cupbearer to the king. Well, now we finally know what his position is. He was a cupbearer. What's a cupbearer? Well, he's a taste tester. He's the man who drinks the king's wine before the king drinks it. And if the wine has been poisoned, the cupbearer drops dead, not the king. It's a very important job. (laughs) Not much job security, but a very important job. And this was a job given only to a slave who was trustworthy. Nehemiah was that kind of slave. As cupbearer, he was close to the king. And so that means he had a comfortable standard of living. I mean, he had a relatively easy life as long as no one dropped any strychnine into the wine. The only thing he had to watch out for. But being a slave, he was not in a position of any authority. His job was simply to serve the king in this one capacity. I was cupbearer the king. Now, Nehemiah, theoretically, could have lived out his life in this manner, living in the king's palace, dining at the king's table, but that was not enough for him, as we will see. When he heard about the disgrace of Jerusalem, his heart was stirred. He decided that he just had to do something about it, even though he didn't know how. He was just a slave. Even though he had a good life, even though he had never been to Jerusalem, even though the problems of that ancient faraway city did not affect him directly or personally, even so, something clicked in his heart that day, this heart of a servant, and he decided he had to be involved. He had to do something. He had to be available for God's use. And this means really, the good news of this is, this means that anyone 
can make a difference in the hands of God, anyone. It doesn't matter how low you are on the socioeconomic scale. It doesn't matter how limited you are in experience or education or resources. You might be like Nehemiah, a slave whose primary responsibility is to be the one to die before your boss does. (laughs) When there's a purge in the office, you go first. (laughs) That might be your position. What a job, huh? What a job. And yet, if you are willing to have the heart of a servant, you are the kind of person that God will use in surprising ways. You may know the story of David and Goliath. God used a simple shepherd boy to defeat an enemy, a great enemy, of the nation of Israel. And that shepherd boy eventually became the greatest king in Israel's history. Who saw that coming? Nobody but God. Even though everything about David's background and his upbringing should have prepared him for life as a simple farmer, David was willing to serve God in any capacity. He was willing to say, here I am, Lord. What do you want of me? Here's my heart. I give it to you. He became known as a man after God's own heart. Are you willing to surrender your heart to God? as a servant, not making demands, not giving the Lord conditions, but as a servant, willing to do whatever, whatever it takes to renovate whatever ruins you face. Are you willing to change? God uses humble servants and gives them an abundance of grace. God resists the proud. We've all felt that. God resists the proud, but he gives grace upon grace upon grace to the humble. That's what we need. Renovation starts in the heart. We need, first of all, that servant's heart. Second, we need a broken heart. Well, this is getting worse and worse. Who, who wants a broken heart? That sounds like pain. Anybody here want pain? I know I don't, but we need a broken heart if we are going to participate and experience God's renovating work. We need a broken heart. Nehemiah's brother Hanani came to visit him at the king's palace, and he told Nehemiah that Jerusalem was in great trouble. He said the wall is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. Nehemiah cared deeply about the city of Jerusalem and his kinsmen living there. He didn't want Jerusalem to fall into disgrace. In recent decades, as I mentioned, some improvements had been made in the holy city. But it was all at risk. And it broke Nehemiah's heart to think that those achievements, that progress, could be easily undone by an invading army. It broke his heart that no one in the city had undertaken the rebuilding of the walls. It broke his heart that thousands of people were living in Jerusalem, oblivious to the danger, apathetic toward their responsibilities as citizens, helpless to get anything done. Verse 4 says that in response to all of that, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept the man collapsed. He just collapsed in tears. That's the broken heart I'm talking about. 
Nehemiah cared so much about his people, about his home, about the honor of God, that the whole mess just made him cry. He couldn't help himself. None of us likes to cry. What makes you cry? What makes you sad? What breaks your heart? What pain do you feel of wrongs that need to be made right? What keeps you up at night? You see, these are the things that especially touch your heart, that cause you to say, this isn't right. I can't ignore this. This breaks my heart. Let me tell you a story. About 50 years ago, a man named David Wilkerson was a pastor in Pennsylvania. And one night he came across an article in Time magazine about some teenage gang members who were on trial for murder in New York City. As he looked at the courtroom sketches, he was overwhelmed by the hatred in these young men's eyes. He couldn't get it out of his mind. It, it, it broke his heart. Now, David Wilkerson was a nobody. Nobody knew him. He was just a country preacher in a tiny church living in a roach-infested parsonage. He had no influence. He had no resources. He didn't even have a decent car. But he couldn't stop thinking about those kids. His heart was broken over them. Do you know what happened? Wilkerson got in his car and hoped it would make it to New York City, and he went there to share the gospel with those young men. And out of that, eventually, he developed a ministry called Teen Challenge, which became devoted to reaching kids, teenagers, young adults who were at risk throughout the world. You might be interested to know that we have women from the Teen Challenge house in Germantown coming to our Celebrate Recovery group here on Tuesday nights. It's a great partnership. They love coming here, and we love having them here. And they encourage us with their testimonies regularly, over and over again, month by month. We hear stories of the renovating power and work of God in ruined lives. And all of that started because the heart of an ordinary man was broken over the broken lives of kids in a far-off city. God uses people who are willing to have a broken heart. It's not easy having a broken heart. A heart that is broken by what breaks his heart as he looks upon this world. So what breaks your heart? Do you know yet? Has that happened yet? I can tell you how it happens. It has a tendency to find you much more so than you finding it. There will be a need to which God will begin to call you, to devote your time and your energy to it. It will stir your spirit. It will ignite your soul. And trust me, it will break your heart. It will get a hold of you, and it will not let you go. That's what's happened to me. And I believe that's why I'm still here at New Life Philly in the year 2016. God has a way of breaking our hearts and drawing us into the things that, where he wants to go to work. 
So renovation, it starts in the heart. We need a servant's heart. We need a broken heart. If we don't have a broken heart, we just see no need for renovation. And third, we need a praying heart. We need a praying heart. In response to the news about Jerusalem's broken walls, Nehemiah says in verse 4, For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. He just couldn't get away from it. He couldn't forget about it. He couldn't ignore it. He prayed. He fasted. He wept. This went on, it says, for some days. You see, Nehemiah did not just up and decide to go do something about Jerusalem's walls. The vision for that came to him through prayer. Over a period of time. I think it's helpful to think of prayer itself as a necessary and cherished wall in our lives. Because when we pray, we enter, as it were, into our own souls, the most spiritually intimate chamber of life. And prayer, prayer is that still place of life where all of the churning stops as you commune with It's the central place where everything else finds its connection. It's the quiet place where you not only speak to God, but you also listen to him. You cannot pray and watch TV at the same time. You cannot pray and negotiate a business deal at the same time. You you cannot pray and argue with someone else at the same time. Of course, you can throw up one-liners to heaven in the midst of all of that, but serious prayer is when you enter into quiet communion with God. And so just as a house needs walls, so does your soul need walls. And, And prayer is that wall that forms the space where you encounter God. And it may be that the wall of prayer has been broken down in your life. And maybe the wall of prayer is just lying in ruins in your life. That's where you begin. The walls of prayer need to be rebuilt. Because without prayer, your soul, it just disappears into the storms and the meanness of life. And you wonder where you are and how you got there. Just as every church has seasons where renovation is needed, so does every life. And maybe you are at such a place today, as you begin this new year. Maybe the renovations need to be made in your relationships, in your marriage, in your family, in your career, in your finances. Maybe you need to make changes in how you care for your body. Maybe it's about your relationship with Jesus. Maybe you've been deferring maintenance on one of those areas for far too long. And now it's time to get some blueprints for a new way of life. If you launch into making such changes and renovations, you will probably go through all of the stages of renovation that I mentioned at the beginning of the message. First, you'll get a vision or a dream for how your life might be. And then secondly, you'll begin to count the cost of that. And thirdly, 
you'll, you'll start. You'll, 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 you'll start in. You'll begin that hard and often stressful work of actually making changes in your life for the glory of God. But here's a very important point. Those changes have to be made from the inside out. That is how God works. If they are not made from the inside out, you are not truly renovating life. You're just rearranging furniture. And to change life from the inside out, you have to pray all the way through. You have to begin with prayer or you will never find the vision. You'll have to pray about the cost of it or it will always feel too hard. It's too much. You have to pray through the starting and through the messy renovations or you'll just lose heart. Prayer is the only way to stay in communion with God, the master builder and the master renovator of your life. God is not done with you. I hope you don't feel that way today. God is not done with you. God is not done with us as a church. He loves you, and he loves us too much to stop now. I believe God will be on the move in some very crucial ways among us in the year ahead, and I'm looking forward to that. He loves us too much to stop. Sometimes we give up on ourselves. Sometimes we give up on other people. But God is so faithful. He says, you're mine in Jesus Christ You're mine, and I am not giving up on you. I will not stop. I will not stop. I will not stop, says the living God. But I'm going to stop preaching. I'm going to stop preaching right now, and we'll pick up here next week. I want these things to percolate in our hearts. And I want to give you a heads up. As part of the sermon next Sunday... We're going to spend some time in corporate lament, mourning together as modeled for us here by Nehemiah. Verse 4, for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. We have some grieving and some confessing to do ourselves, especially in the aftermath of the fall of a former pastor who had served here for 10 years before leaving a year ago. We need the Lord to do some renovation in us, too. And we may not have a very clear picture of just exactly what that is yet, but I believe that God will help us to see that. We have some renovation that we need the Lord to do in us, too. So let's meet back here next Sunday. And I want to encourage you to start with the concert of prayer during the Sunday school hour. 9.30 next Sunday, be there. Perhaps you're not a Sunday school person. That can change. And I I just want to encourage you to do whatever you have to do to be at that concert of prayer. Because that's who we are as a church. That's who we are. If you miss that, you miss the heart of who we are. That we're a people in prayer. We're a people who are called to be before the face of God. So do everything you can um, to be there for that concert of prayer because a good portion of that prayer, that, that time of prayer, will be a time of lament. 
And then we'll just continue that in the worship service as part of the sermon. I will lead us in a time of lament. And you may be thinking, what's lament? I don't know how to do that. Well, welcome to the club. We're not very good at it, but the Bible is full of it. The Bible is so full of lament because the world is such a broken place. Sin is such a destroyer. You read the Psalms, and you can't read very long before coming across Psalms of lament. You look at the life of Jesus, and you see him weeping over the hardness of heart in Jerusalem, weeping over the destroying power of death at the grave of Lazarus. He's lamenting the broken state of the world. And so why do we lament? We lament because that's part of facing reality. That's part of facing the way things are. And when we lament, it really reflects the heart of our Heavenly Father toward his children as he looks down upon us in our need, in our sin, in our brokenness. His fatherly heart feels that grief and that pain. And when we lament, we're joining him. We're reflecting his heart. And I think it's in lament that hope is really born. We face things as they are, and, and, and hope begins to dawn. And healing begins in those places of brokenness and pain. And so I think next Sunday will be a very special Sunday for us as a church. And I just want to encourage you to be part of that. So let's meet back here next Sunday on our knees. Amen?